Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 6. We're going to take a break from our series through Matthew, and as we have a number of times already, look at uh, one of the parables that's not in Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't include very many parables at all, um, so we're taking periodically the opportunity to look at some of those parables that are in uh, Matthew and Luke's gospels particularly. Also going to read um, a little bit later from Isaiah 28, a few several verses from Isaiah 28, so uh, you might turn there and put a gum wrapper in that or something like that. Um, but first I'm just going to read from Luke chapter 6, this uh, short parable, a uh, well-known parable. Beginning in verse 46, here God's word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Well, here at the end of of Luke chapter 6... Uh, if we had, had more time, maybe we'd read the, this, this whole chapter. Uh, it's a long chapter. It has uh, a number of parallels with the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew, which is, is longer. Um, but they both end the exact same way. They both end with this, this brief parable, which is, I think, a, something of a call to self-examination. Uh, and we could take a number of Jesus' instructions through this chapter as calls to self-examination. If you look at the uh, the verse that just preceded what I read, Jesus said, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. But the things that we speak reflect what's in our hearts. Um, and I think likely the connection now with, with this parable, with what Jesus says here, is while our, our speech is important, it is indicative of what's in our hearts, it, it comes from what's in our hearts, um, where we stand before God, it's not perfectly indicative of where we stand. Right, because our speech can be deceptive, uh, intentionally so, or we can be self-deceived. We can speak without sincerity. We can speak without uh, understanding. And so, Jesus' final warning here in this parable and the, the Sermon on the Mount is that you would not deceive with your mouth, with what you say, either deceive other people or, or perhaps even be self-deceived in terms of whether you are truly following Jesus as Lord. In fact, you need to examine. Uh, your actions, you need to examine your whole life um, to see whether you're following Jesus as Lord. We look at, at the first point on your outline there in your, in your bulletin. Jesus is giving an example here of someone who speaks something of faith and discipleship uh, with their mouth, but, but whose life then contradicts that confession. Uh, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? That that double Lord Lord is is indicating an emphatic uh, an emotional profession of Jesus as Lord 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 it's a, a passionate profession of discipleship but Jesus goes on 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Saying Lord, Lord to Jesus implies that he has some claim over you, that you serve him, um, you honor him as Lord. But Jesus' example here is someone whose life then discredits that, that claim, that profession. It's, it's not a true profession. Uh, either because it's, it's consciously dishonest uh, or because someone is self-deceived. There, there are many who profess faith in Christ who are in some way self-deceived. They don't understand what, what they're professing, what that means. They have some kind of false assurance of who they are in relation to Jesus. They don't understand maybe the necessary connection between a profession, what we say of Jesus, what we know of Jesus on the one hand, and on the other hand, thoughts and decisions and and words that obey Jesus as Lord, that that really follow him in discipleship. This is something that uh, James, in the epistle of James, uh, addresses uh, extensively. Uh, James chapter 1, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he gives this this illustration of someone who uh, looks in a mirror and sees what they're like uh, and then goes away and forgets immediately. Someone who looks into the perfect law of God and then immediately goes away and and forgets what it says. It makes no difference in his life. Um, Then in James chapter 2, particularly, he speaks of the necessary connection between faith and, and works. Um, what, what, is, what is said or what is professed and the life that comes from that. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? But the answer to that rhetorical question is, is no, it's not a true faith. He goes on, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says later in that chapter, you believe God is one, you do well, it's, it's good, you believe in God. But even the demons believe and shudder. To believe in God, to profess something of faith in God is not necessarily um, any more meaningful than what what the demons know and profess. And I think here Jesus in this parable, as he's setting it up, is giving the the gravest of all calls to self-examination. He's not... And, and again, we could look more at this whole chapter, this whole sermon that's culminating here. But Jesus is not merely now saying, are you growing in extraordinary love? There's this, this great passage on love in Luke chapter 6. He's not merely saying now, are you uh, aware of your own sins and not hypocritically judging others? He addresses that in this chapter as well. But now Jesus challenges, is your profession even true? Is your profession of faith in Christ even even real when you say, Lord, Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? He's he's not your Lord simply because you say so. Uh, J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage says, Obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. And the talk of lips is worse than useless if it's not accompanied by sanctification of the life. It's important that what we say is important. Again, what we profess is important. But I think this is a good and faithful summary of the Bible's teaching. Obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. And the talk of lips is worse than useless if it's not accompanied by a life. Why is that? You believe 
If you believe your mere profession to be meaningful or useful, uh, making you right with God, saving you from His judgment, uh, and, and you're self-deceived. If, if you've heard the gospel, you know about Jesus, you've heard His call to faith and, and salvation, and you think you have it, but you don't, you're perhaps worse off um, than if you've never heard it at all, or, or had no, uh, no sense that you had some relationship with Him. You'll not be looking for the truth, you'll be resistant to hearing the truth, you, you think you already have it. Verse 47, Jesus goes on, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. In other words, the one who calls me Lord and and means it, understands what that means, and and lives it out in their lives. Um, And probably thinking of of all that chapter 6 is about, this whole sermon. These, These are the ways that this is lived out in your life. Examine your whole life. So Jesus concludes this sermon with a final powerful call to self-examination in this in this parable. As if he's saying uh, at the end of chapter 6 here, if, if all you've taken from this, this sermon is some sentiments about blessing and loving each other and not being judgmental, then you need to listen to this parable and examine your life and, and see if your profession uh, is true. Well, secondly, on your outline, before we actually look at the parable here, this is where I want to look at uh, Isaiah 28 for a moment with you. Um, it's helpful to see this, this Old Testament passage that is, I think, very likely uh, in the background of Jesus' parable. I think he's borrowing from the imagery of Isaiah 28. <clears throat> in telling this parable. Uh, we're going to begin reading several verses in, in verse 14. Um, and just the, the context here, if we were to read more of what's around these verses that we'll read, Israel's facing an invasion from Assyria. Okay, so this is a bad and, and dangerous thing, a dangerous time. And this is not a time of Israel's uh, faithful, faithfully seeking the Lord and so on. And so the, the context of Isaiah 28 is Israel has made a, an agreement with Egypt. Egypt is going to come to their rescue uh, if Assyria invades, and uh, so Israel feels confident and safe because of this um, this pact they have with Egypt. And that just another note on, on verse seven, verse fifteen. This is what's behind the reference to this covenant with death that Israel has made. Um, almost certainly a reference to Egypt. Egypt uh, much of Egypt's worldview and religion centered on death and the gods of death. And so this is sort of a euphemism of uh, for uh, shorthand for Egypt and for this, this, this um, pact they have. And uh, this whole passage is addressing the idea that Israel has constructed a shelter. This is the imagery. They've, they've built a shelter for themselves through this agreement with Egypt, rather than turning to the Lord. And the, the, the building materials they've used are lies and deception, God says. Uh, but he's building something else. Okay, so let's, let's read what become, will become of this shelter that they've built. Just beginning in verse 14. It says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord of scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, and now Isaiah is going to kind of sarcastically put words in their mouth, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed or sheltered ourselves with deception. We've built this shelter for ourselves with lies and deception, and we feel safe. 
Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. God says, I'm, you've built that, I'm building something else that will be firm and lasting. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. These are the building materials God's going to use. And then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with shale will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. And reading there, just uh, consider the parallels between that passage, that prophecy, and uh, the parable that Jesus tells here. They both begin with a call to hear the word of the Lord, really hear God's word. And then they both speak of two, two structures being built. Right? In Isaiah 28, there's a structure built out of lies and deception, uh, and the people feel safe. They're trusting in the Egyptians rather than the Lord. Um, and in both stories, both parables, uh, a storm comes through. Uh, and one of, the, one of the structures is completely destroyed. Okay, but God promises in this passage a better future. He's promising a tested, a sure uh, stone foundation uh, to build on, a precious cornerstone, verse 16. Uh, justice and righteousness, uh, obedience to the Lord will be the, the materials to build on uh, that foundation with. Um, just as God called Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord, verse 14, to really hear, really obey, and follow him. Uh, so Jesus speaks, I think, in this adaptation of this, in this parable here, of himself as that foundation, and, and doing his word uh, as, as building on that. Okay, We'll, we'll come back to that uh, again briefly a little bit later, but I just wanted you to see that. Uh, background first. So let's consider thirdly then that the two the two buildings in Jesus' parable. Okay, so first there's a building with a foundation. Verse 47. Um, I will show you what he's like. The the person who acts on Jesus' words. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And the whole whole emphasis in this parable I think is on the foundation. Uh, whether whether there is a foundation or isn't a foundation, and in our uh, modern world, uh, I think part of the part of the point and part of the force of this parable, and the emphasis on the foundation is is lost on us with with the technology we have and that kind of thing. If if you're going to build a house. Um, you're, you're not going to dig a hole with your hands. You're probably going to hire someone who has a backhoe, right? And they're just going to relatively quickly and easily dig a hole and back up a cement truck and pour a footer and pour the foundation. Um, that's, that's just kind of how it goes, and it's not really a big deal. In the ancient world, uh, it, was, it meant much long, hard labor, uh, even to build their by comparison, just incredibly small and simple homes, right? Um, I'm relying on some of the reflection on, on this, uh, on, on Ken Bailey, who's a, um, 
expert in Middle Eastern studies and lived in the Middle East for a long time, particularly among um, villages that haven't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years, um, don't have a lot of advanced technology and that kind of thing. And he explains that then as now in those kind of communities, you would only build uh, in, in Palestine or surrounding areas in the summer. The winter was cold, it was the rainy season, uh, the summer was dry and warm, and, and it's the time that building was done. Um, the soil there in Palestine is also a very high percentage of clay, um, and so in the middle of the summer it's, it's very hard. Uh, almost rock hard. Um, Ken Bailey references Leviticus 26, a, a curse that God um, uh, uh, threatens about the, the ground becoming like bronze. And he says that's really what it's like in the summer anyways. Um, and so the idea of building, uh, digging for a foundation uh, means very long, hard, hot work, just chipping away at that bronze, rock hard um, soil with ancient tools. Um, in Palestine also there's, there's bedrock everywhere. The bedrock is, is generally very close to the surface. Um, we have bedrock in the United States. A lot of places often it's very deep. Uh, in Palestine it might be one inch under the surface, it might be ten feet under the surface. Uh, but Ken Bailey also writes, uh, in reflecting on this parable, he says, I've asked numerous village builders about the depth that they must excavate to construct a stone house. He says the answer is always the same. They tell me they must dig down to the rocks. So whether it's two feet or four feet or 12 feet, uh, you don't build a stone house unless you dig all the way down to the rock. Um, What's the comparison that, that Jesus is making? This, this first builder, of course, is someone whose profession of faith, their, their Lord, Lord, is real. Right? It's, it's true. Someone who's truly received Jesus as Lord of his life, as the foundation of all that he is and does. He's, he's seen especially the long-term necessity of that, like, like a building project, and seeing the long-term necessity of having a foundation. Well, part of the point is that this is not the easy way. And that's why it's helpful to understand something of what it would take to really build a foundation uh, in the ancient world and in that place and dig through the hard, rock-hard clay. Uh, it's much easier to coast through life to pay lip service to Jesus and coast along in cultural Christianity and so on while building security and satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction and security in other things. Family and wealth and, and other things, even good things. To truly trust Jesus is painful and costly. It will cost you your pride, your, your goals, your desires. It demands that you deny yourself, that you learn to obey because you trust Jesus as your foundation. You trust him to, to forgive you through his death in your place, to guide you. Um, to give you a vision of, of the renewal of all things one day. That's the costly, painful way, but that, that foundation, a relationship with God in Christ, um, will stand through any trouble. And that's, of course, where the curve is, is headed here. But let's uh, consider, secondly, the, the house without a foundation. Verse 49, the one who's heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. Um, 
given those those summers and the rock hard clay, again Ken Bailey comments, it's easy to imagine a builder in summer with little imagination or wisdom thinking he can build an adequate one level house on hard clay. The walls won't be more than seven feet high, it's hot. The idea of long days of backbreaking work under a hot, cloudless sky are not appealing. Right? And so he builds the house right on the clay. And here, of course, the comparison is with someone who says, Lord, Lord, and their profession is, is surface level, right? It, it's not, he's not building his life on the foundation of Christ. And, and it's important for us to recognize Jesus' comparison is not with an unbeliever in, in the sense of an, an atheist or a Buddhist or someone who claims nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is illustrating someone who claims a relationship with Jesus and does not have one. Right? Someone who hasn't truly made Christ the foundation of his life. He, he maybe thinks it's simply about calling Jesus Lord. He uses the lingo. He goes through the motions. But since salvation and, and discipleship are not understood, they're not sincere in his life. He's not eager to do the backbreaking labor of trusting and obeying Jesus when things are difficult or, or giving every part of his life to the Lord, submitting his leisure and his finances and his family and everything to be directed uh, by a Lord that he, he knows and trusts and loves. How do we build that kind of foundation? How do we build on that foundation? There's lots of a lot of ways we could go with thinking about that, a lot of different applications that could be made. Um, I want to bring a couple to your mind this morning that maybe wouldn't most readily come to mind. Um, thinking about our life together as a church, uh, we're blessed in, in our tradition to have a, a thorough, comprehensive confession of faith. A confession of faith, I think, is... Um, applicable here. What, what is a confession of faith? It's an honest, thorough, uh, not perfect, but an honest, thorough attempt to build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus and His Word. Right? Laying out objective truths. This is what we believe. This is who we are. But not simply objective truths, also implications of those. This is what this means for our lives. This, this is how we build on that foundation, how we believe that should look in, in our world, in our lives. Our, our confession, as other faithful confessions, are expressions of what we think about God and what we believe that scriptures teach about ourselves and about our vocations, where they teach about our world and, and its problems and our worship and our government and truth and the family and, and on and on. And, and building on that, what, what does it mean to build on the foundation of Christ um, as the foundation of, of all of these things? Well, a majority of people in our country still profess faith in Christ, a relationship with Christ. I, I think most of us would probably recognize or agree that the lives and culture of many would suggest that um, it's not a, a true profession. There's some false assurance. There's much false assurance. But I don't want us to simply be thinking outside of these walls or pointing fingers. This is, none of us is immune uh, from that at all. 
A false assurance of a saving relationship with Christ is a, a grave and present danger for any of us. If we're not examining our lives in the way Jesus is calling us to here. Does that maybe describe you? Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Or are you maybe just paying lip service and going through emotions, doing what's familiar? Or are you walking with Him, listening to Him? Have you given your whole life to Him? We need to be careful we are not leading others into false assurance by having a mere profession of faith and not living it out in our lives. It's easy for others to see through that in us. Another point of application, again, among, among many, but that comes to mind in connection with thinking about the kind of false assurance that Jesus is addressing that I, I bring up because I've been asked about it and um, there, there's a difference between churches or traditions. This is, relates to one of the reasons why in our, our tradition, as, as many, we, we don't do uh, altar calls, right? traditional altar calls, which tend to rely on social pressure, maybe dramatic Music and emotions running high and, and powerful rhetoric. Um, and that's not to deny that that kind of a, an altar call has been used to bring people to genuine faith. That's, that's not the point at all. But it has a tendency to lead to false assurance, right? To lead to, for that, the foundation to have been some kind of emotional, uh, energetic, social, Lord, Lord. Right, and not built on the foundation uh, of Christ. Many have been called into a false assurance and have for the rest of their lives looked back at you know, when they were young or something, they came forward or they signed the card or they prayed the prayer and that is their foundation that then didn't necessarily mean anything in their lives moving forward. Again, none of us is immune to that in all sorts of ways. But rather than a simple trust in the person and work of Christ, um, evidenced by a long and difficult struggle to work that out, right, to, to build on that foundation. Um, just one example of um, uh, where we can come to um, place our faith in something other than Christ, right? It's, it's not a moment in time. It's a, it's a long, hard struggle. Uh, let's let's consider then the outcomes of these two these two houses these two buildings. Uh, what Jesus pictures is a, a flash flood coming against both of these houses. Then verse forty eight, um, when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And verse forty nine, the other, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. The story of the three little pigs comes to mind here. Um, but what Jesus has in mind is uh, not the big bad wolf, but an occasional uh, rainy season flash flood that comes down the valley. And again, Ken Bailey describes his experience with that, that rock hard clay in the summer uh, becoming something like soup when it's sitting in a flood for a while. And so the house that's built on top of the, that hard clay um, is sitting on soup and it buckles and crumbles quickly. The one of the foundation is secure and the one that has no foundation is, is destroyed completely. 
I'm going to think back to that, that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28. That prophecy of a foundation where God says, you're building this, this rickety shed with lies and deception. I'm laying a foundation stone in Zion. Um, that was a significant um, prophecy in, in uh, ancient Jewish tradition. There was a lot of thought given to what Jesus was, or what God was talking about, uh, what that foundation was, what it would be, uh, when it would be. And so there are different ideas of what God was talking about there. Um, just, just here's a couple of examples. Um, some of you know who the, the, the Qumran community uh, is or was. Um, the Qumran community was a sort of Jewish sect that was out in the wilderness by themselves. They didn't do or see everything the same way that, that Judaism did in, in Jerusalem and the rest of Palestine. Um, the Qumran community is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and why they're known uh, well. But in their, their set of rules for themselves... Uh, they had a stated goal of, a, of a, having a council of 15 really good men who had a, just exemplary lives, three priests and 12 others, um, who, would, who would rule over them. And that was their idea that that would be the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 28, uh, verse 16. God laying a foundation. Um, this, this really good man to rule over them and, and that from that God would build the kingdom of heaven. Um, another understanding in, in Jerusalem, or the understanding of official Judaism, um, there's a stone in the Holy of Holies, there was, there in the temple, um, where the ark once was. You know, by Jesus' time, the ark of the covenants was lost for hundreds of years. But that stone where the ark was, was called and known as the foundation. Um, it's referred to that in that way in the Mishnah and other, other ancient Jewish texts. Um, it's been suggested that, that that stone there in the temple was named and understood to be uh, in reference to Isaiah chapter 28. And the idea sort of being that the, the temple and, and the temple complex and all of the rituals of the temple were the foundation that God would, would build from. If, if people would just do it all correctly, go through the motions just the right way, and we could get everybody on board, that might be the foundation of God um, bringing in the kingdom. I think in this parable, Jesus is essentially saying, and, and throughout his teaching and the teaching of the New Testament, it's not your council of 15 really good people um, it's not the old temple and, and going through the motions just right, but that foundation is, is him. Right? It's the one who hears his words. It's believing and doing and following Jesus in his word. And, and the rest of the New Testament makes that explicit in referencing the cornerstone in the Psalms as well. So is, is Jesus your foundation? Is he really your foundation? You and I and all of us are, are building a house, right, in, in a sense, individually, or you think of that in terms of our households. We're, we're building a life on something, towards something. What are you, what are you building on? What's your understanding of your relationship to Christ? You are not a Christian simply because you say so, as Jesus says here. You're not a Christian simply because your parents are, or because you come to church or go through the motions. 
you're safely established on the foundation of Jesus if you embrace him as the Savior of the, of the world, as, as the Lord of your life. What we need to see is, as we close here, this, this parable is not first a call to uh, try harder, right? or to obey better, or to build better. It, it's a call first to, to believe, or to truly believe that your, your profession of faith in Christ, your calling him Lord, Lord, would be true. That, that you would know him and believe in him rightly. You can't lay the foundation of your life. You can't earn eternal life with God. Jesus has earned that for you. He's laid the foundation. Um, if you will simply believe in him, trust him, uh, turn to him in faith. And that will be, as James says, that will be evidence then in a life that follows him. Not perfectly, uh, but genuinely, truly. Uh, the, the flood in this parable pictures any trouble. It could picture any trouble that we face in this life um, and that you will face. Because in reality, if you're building on any foundation but Christ, uh, those, those things will be swept away, ultimately. Um, if not in this life, maybe not everything will fall apart in this life, but the moment you die, it will be lost and wasted. That will be confirmed in the final judgment. As Jesus points to in other parables, but building your life on the words of Jesus is absolutely sure and safe and eternal. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in an uncertain and dangerous and broken world, a world also under your judgment because of sin, we thank you for the, the sure, rock solid foundation that's laid in the person and work of Jesus and, and your sure promises in him. We pray this morning that you would keep us from building on anything else uh, individually and as a congregation. Holy Spirit, we all pray that you would help us to receive this, your word this morning with faith and love and uh, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.